It's the biggest barn find in automotive history. A collection of 36 cars, one for each year the Corvette was produced from 1953 to 1989. That vanished. 30 years later, those same 36 cars were found gathering dust in a New York City garage. And now, that collection is being brought back to life and given away. The Lost Corvettes. Hey everybody, uh, welcome to another episode of the Lost Corvettes podcast. I'm Chris Mazzilli, your host, and I'm, I'm really excited today, as I am every week, to talk to another car guy, good friend that I've, I've met a couple of years ago. Uh, we worked on a project for the History Channel called the Lost Corvette, where I got uh, Rick's keen input on building my interpretation of what a 1983 Corvette would have been. So everybody, welcome Rick Darling. Hello, I'm here. Hey Rick, how are you buddy? Good to see you. Pretty good, how man. How are you doing? Good, good, good. How are things in the Motor City? Uh, today they're raining. Uh, <laughs> prior to that, they've been really hot. But uh, yeah, we're getting along here with the virus deal and everything that's going on. We're hanging in there. Great. Well, it's always good to see you. And as I mentioned earlier, I met Rick working on a TV show for the History Channel called The Lost Corvette, where me and the guys in my shop built my interpretation of what an 83 Corvette would have been. And, and uh, the first time I met Rick, we had dinner with him and Dave McClellan, so Rick, you spent quite a bit of time at GM, and specifically on the C4 project, which, right. you know, it's interesting, a lot of talk now about the C4, because it was such a big departure from the previous generation, and the same thing now with the C8, uh, so talk about some of your time there at GM and, and working on that particular car. Yeah, um, first off, I'd just like to say that... Uh, the C4 Corvette was done by a very small group of people, and of which I was only one. My responsibility was, uh, along with one other guy, was the entire chassis system uh, of the vehicle as far as development went. So we were responsible for uh, doing all the chassis system tuning, shock absorbers, wheels, tires, brakes, steering system, myself and another guy. Um, we had uh, a small team of about half a dozen guys out at Milford Proving Grounds for GM uh, that did that car uh, and uh, integrated all the components into it and uh, and turned it into the uh, you know the image that that the uh, corporation wanted it to be. Um, I ended up there in let's see how long was it? I think it was about 1981. Uh, when the car was still in its pre-prototype stages. And uh, I, uh, I worked there through 1988, uh, and then I left to go to uh, to some other assignments at GM. Um, during that time, I was uh, responsible for, uh, for uh, suspension tuning on the high-level suspension, the Z51. And my counterpart, uh, Larry, was responsible for the base suspension. And then we had, uh, and he had come from the Camaro group. He had just recently done the Z28. Um, and then his boss, Fred, uh, arrived on scene shortly after that. And uh, between kind of the three of us, we did the chassis system on the car. Well, it was, I mean, you guys really knocked it out of the park because when you, when you get out of a C3 and get into that C4 and, and you know, we used as a donor car an 85 with the Z51 package. And let me tell you something, that car handles, and even just 
the overall feel, it feels like it's, you know, cut from a solid piece of granite. It just, it was the structural rigidity of that car was fantastic. Well, it was a big improvement over what we had previously. And uh, I I was a big Corvette nut before I ever went in the Corvette group, before I was asked to join. Um, I'd had several Corvettes. I was restoring Corvettes. I was going to all the swap meets, the flea markets, you know, uh, Hershey, Bloomington, all those places. Uh, Had a a 63 Corvette uh, with a buddy of mine. It was a sea gas dragster that we raced. So, and then I also... Uh, another friend of mine and I had a 68 Corvette uh, that we road raced. So it was pretty, I was pretty active in Corvettes before I ever came into the group. And I think maybe that's one reason why I was asked to come in the group. Absolutely. So what engine were you running at 68? The 68 had a all aluminum 427 ZL1 motor in it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, uh, we raced that car. In what was it, 72, I think I want to say, the 1972 uh, IMSA 24-hour Daytona race, where we took the car from FCCA uh, rules and we converted it to IMSA rules, which was uh, a lot looser rules than FCCA at the time. Mm-hmm. So the ZL1 went away, became our spare engine, and the race engine for Daytona was a 495-cubic-inch uh, all-aluminum uh Reynolds 390 alloy uh, engine out of a basically for a design for a Chaparral 2J Can-Am car. Wow. Wow. Yeah, was, we were fortunate to get that engine because uh the guy that actually owns the car that I worked with his dad was director of engineering at Chevrolet, so that was we had a we had a connection to get that engine. Big connection. Yeah. So I know you have told me about that LS6 Chevelle that you guys were running. So the original 427, was that the engine out of that car? No. No, no, no. You had a, you had a, didn't you have an aluminum block in that car at some point, too? At some point, we did. That car originally was an LS6, a 70 LS6 mm-hmm. Chevelle. Same guy, the guy that owned the Corvette that I raced with. Uh, he had this 70 Chevelle. It actually had been a show car, GM show car. His dad got for him, bought it at auction. Um, wow. And over time, we uh, we high rotted the LS6 for a while and got tired of that. So that came out, and we <laughs> we built an aluminum big block for it. We were the first guys to do this, as far as we knew. We we built a 454 cubic inch uh, aluminum ZL1 motor. So uh, it was it was a uh, it was a it was a 427 with a 454 crankshaft. You know, so a stroker crank. So it was 454 cubes, and uh, and it had a what did we use for a cam? Oh, we used a Duntoff cam in it, the 094 cam, and uh, it was um, an eight no an 1150 Holly Dominator on a tarantula manifold. That's basically the way we had that car set up. And what was it running the quarter? We in the tens? <laughs> it Nines? Was, it would run 930s on on street tires. I mean, that, that's, that's incredible from back then. Yeah, it was three-inch exhaust all the way back through Corvair turbocharger mufflers, which was, I mean, back then, you know, you had to kind of improvise. We didn't have all the, you know, all the, you know, wild hot rod stuff that you can buy, buy online today. <laughs> we didn't have online back then, right? No, so, no, you couldn't do research. I mean, no. it was a lot of it was trial and error, right? Some of it was trial and error, and some of it was just, you know, we, you just knew, well, okay, a Corvair, a Corvair 
turbocharger muffler, you know, the old Corvair Spiders, those were super low back pressure mufflers. Okay, so you grab a set of those and you throw them on and run three inch pipes all the way back. That's cool. You yeah. know, for those of you that, that don't know that are listening, so the 70 LS6 Chevelle, that was kind of like, that was the car, you know, it was 54, it was 40, 50 horsepower. Of the, mu of the muscle car era. Yeah. I mean, I think that's when it was at its peak. And that car, you know, just pretty much stock. If you put open headers and slicks on it, you were in the, the 12s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, better than that. You know, it was, uh, yeah, and it was, uh, it was, uh, it was un amazingly fast. I mean, those, those engines were rated at 450 horsepower out of the box from the factory, but they really they made more. about 100 horsepower more. They made about 550 stock. And Those with a few, few tweaks, you could get, you know, well over 600 horsepower out. So I remember you telling me that that car pretty much, you didn't lose very often with that car, especially with the second engine. No, no. <laughs> okay, uh, so. Go right ahead. Are you referring to the particular race that I told you about a couple months ago? Oh, the, the Pontiac? Yeah. Oh, you should tell that story. That That's a should great I story. Tell that? All right. I'll, I'll yeah. tell it as quick as I can here because I remember limited on time. Uh, we, oh, no. Take your time. Okay. Uh, there, there, were, there were hot rodders and cruisers and muscle car guys around Detroit, just like there were around every big city in the you know in the late 60s and 70s right now we were no different in that respect but uh we also had the really the really innovative guys uh that really wanted to seriously street race have their own place to go uh and some of the other cities around had had similar things but i, I like to think that we had something that was really special it was a place called originally northwestern highway which turned into Interstate 696 Expressway. And there was a club called the 696 Club, named obviously after the Expressway, uh, that met on Thursday nights at midnight at a bank building. And people would congregate there. Oh my gosh, you'd have 100, 150 people. And the really, really well-prepared, super fast streetcars would show up there and, uh, and race for money. Um, in fact, one of the guys that used to come there regularly was a guy named Jim Addison, who is uh, relatively well known around the country. And I think is actually this original car is has been found and restored. Uh, it was a Plymouth Belvedere with a, I think about a 489 cubic inch Hemi engine in it. He actually had factory engineers come to this uh, come to this you know Thursday night function with him. Uh, we used to go. Uh, not every every week, but we used to take the Chevelle there. And one time we had this guy come by and he said, hey, do you want to race the car for 500 bucks? Okay. What do you have? I got a Firebird. Uh, okay. Uh, where are we meeting? Well, he didn't want to race there. He wanted to go over the other side of town. So we met him on the other side of town near the GM Tech Center. Um, and uh, he shows up with this black Firebird. And... Uh, he had us wait at a gas station, and the guy, <laughs> the guy that owned the gas station came out and said, "Hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're waiting for this guy. Oh, you're waiting for Frankie, the guy with the black flip. Yeah, 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 that guy. Uh, well, you're gonna lose this race. Really? 
okay. So uh, he shows up at the Firebird, and we run over behind the General Motors Technical Center on Mound Road, and we line up there. It's the uh, afternoon shift letting out at about 11 o'clock at night, and there's cars everywhere. They're all honking their horns because we got all the traffic blocked off and uh, doing bleach burnouts, you know. And so we line up, and I'm passenger. My buddy Steve's driving his car. This little Frankie guy's driving the Firebird. And I put my arm out the window and go, okay, on, you know, three, two, one. And they go on two and take off and jump the gun on us. Well, he pulled the front wheels on that Firebird about two feet off the ground. <laughs> and when I saw that, I knew we were in trouble. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so he got the jump on us about, you know, three, four car lengths. And by the by the end, we reeled him in. Well, what happened? I, I kind of left this part of the story out. There was this Cadillac that kind of passed us just before we started racing and went all the way down to the entrance to the uh, GM Tech Center. And this Frankie fellow says, now that guy's going to be the judge of who wins the race and he's going to take the money. So we lost the race by about a half a car length. And we go meet up with the guy at the Cadillac, and we hand him the 500 bucks and come to find out uh, this guy was the, uh, was the founder of the Royal Bobcat GTO. That's and, great. Uh, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Jim, Jim, Jim. I can't think. <laughs> Not Wangers? Name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that was how we kind of got to know this guy. And actually, we got a lot of pointers from – from Jim as far as setting our car up. Found out some things that back in those days, you know, you didn't have electronic ignition and all the mm -hmm. electronically controlled transmissions. Uh, what so was you running in the Firebird? Was it like a like a four or like a Ramrat four? Firebird. The Firebird we found out later was a four fifty five engine with a four twenty eight crank. You know, short mm -hmm. short stroke four fifty five. And uh, with a Rochester Quadrajet four barrel. And uh, really well set up. So uh, anyway, that was uh, that was that aspect of it. Well, about a year later, uh, we uh, we met up again to race again, uh, sort of a rematch. And uh, this time we beat him. We raced him out on another road, and we and and Jim flew in actually from Milwaukee because he had bought a Chevy dealership in Milwaukee. He flew back for the race just to watch. What and, did you say? You got the five hundred bucks back. Got the five hundred bucks back, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to go back and talk a little more about the C four because that car, you know, although like right now they're not super popular, but I, I actually think they're a great buy for the money. I mean, it was very, very well received when the eighty four Corvette came out. You know, I mean, it was Motor Trend Car of the Year, it was Car and Driver Top Ten, you know, and even like the World Press, like you know, spoke very, very highly of it because it was, you know departure from the previous generation right it was it i can remember the first time i got in i got in a prototype car and took it for a ride i was just blown away blown away with how how hard that car could go around a corner you know it was oh, yeah. just unbelievable and it was just a rock solid car in terms of of handling it was impressive really really impressive it had a few faults here and there that eventually over time we fixed, you know, mm -hmm. we mostly corrected, but, um, it was, a 
it was i mean when the when we got it in the hands of the press they were the, they felt the same way they just could not believe what a quantum leap in in handling that car was and i i remember our boss fred calling larry and i in on numerous occasions into was his like schnapps or something like that yeah it was strange last name right oh, Shapsma, fred Shapsma. yes Shapsma. yeah he was he, he's passed now mm -hmm. uh, but uh fred was an old uh uh dutch guy and he really knew how to he knew his stuff and um but he would call larry and i and periodically and sit us down and of course give us the boss lecture and say listen you guys if you if you're going to come to a point where you have to make a decision between how well the car rides and how well the car handles in, while you're tuning the suspension, you know what the answer is always going to be, right? And we said, <laughs> yes, boss, it will always be handling. <laughs> we, will always, we will give up ride for handling. <laughs> and we got... We got a bit crucified for that in the press the first year, and we had to end up. We ended up backing off a little bit, but boy, I'll tell yeah, you, you what. softened it by seventeen percent for eighty-five, right? Yeah, we softened. Yeah, that was yeah. that was uh, that was when Fred left and John Einersey came in and took over the group. You know, and yep. John and I worked together to try to get the car to ride a little softer, a little bit more forgiving, and and keep the handling. So, you know, that was another aspect of uh, what I did there. Cool. And when did you guys start? I mean, was work on the ZR1 already happening at that time, or did that come like a little later? It was a little later. I think the first ZR1 concept or idea uh, was around 80, late 85, maybe 85. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, it was about a year to a year and a half later, we started to formulate the whole idea of that. And what they wanted to do, of course, it was it revolved around the engine. Of course, the twin overhead cam engine mm -hmm. that eventually that they Lotus Mercruiser to make, right? Right. Mercury to make it. Um, but uh, that development went on for a couple of years, you know. And they experimented with with other. They experimented with vehicles that had twin turbochargers on them. They experimented with other ways of upping the horsepower, but in the end. We went with the Cosworth design twin overhead cam heads. Yeah, when that when that thing came out, I mean, that was it just turned everything upside down. I mean, yeah. that was, and, and, and those cars are a great buy today. Oh, I, I think I, the, the best bang for the buck. They really are. It, you pick them up for you know in the in the twenty thousand dollar range all day long. You know, yep. and, you know the I early mean, ones are three seventy five. Really, really nice ones in the mid thirties. Yeah, low you know, miles. A, I mean. You know, I mean, we all know what they went for. Some of those cars sold for over a hundred thousand dollars when they first came out. You know, I mean, they were legit. They were over sixty thousand. They were like sixty, sixty because that engine option only I think was like a thirty-one, thirty thousand, thirty-two thousand dollar option. Was yeah over the base price of the car, which was thirty. You know, so yep. you were looking at a big, big number, and deals were getting over a hundred for them. Yep. But yep. that listen, I remember like when that thing came out, it just it changed. And when you saw one on the road, it was oh my god, like people would freak out. Yeah. Freak out. Yep. Yeah. And those engines, uh, although they think they were around 400 horsepower at the time, yep. uh, easily today, I mean, there's uh, you can get 500 horsepower out of them with just a chip change in the computer, pretty much. Yep. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. yeah. And you know it. what? That car can handle it. Because even like yeah. when we oh, built yeah. our, the 83, you know, we put a uh, 
supercharger, intercooler, chip, different exhaust, and it's pushing well over 500 horsepower, and the car handles it fine. It's, you know, yep. it's, it it's great. It's really, I got to tell you, it is a fun car to drive. Really, really it was, fun. The, the, first, the first C4 was way underpowered. You know, we were still, yeah. we were still, you know, tied up with all the emissions stuff you know, yeah, it had that carryover had that cross the crossfire injection but two right. actually was a stat it was a nice little motor you know when that came out in 85 it was a big difference from 205 horsepower to, you know to 230 it was but still the car was underpowered and yep. then in 86 we got the two port two port injection which was a huge you know increase in power um that took the car from that took the car up to uh, a really true, you know, high performance sports car but at that point. And those cars today did such bargains. I mean, you can pick up a nice example for under 10,000 bucks. You can. Yeah. You know? My next door neighbor has one. <laughs> yeah. And, and you can drive them all, all day long, you know, with the yep. AC blare and the hate, you know. Yeah. I loved it. Know. We used to go on these test trips and it was always, what was always used to blow my mind was, yeah, the, we had, you know, the cars then had, we had overdrive and everything by that time and, and the fuel injection. And, you know, these Corvette test strips are notorious for for uh, driving all day long at, you know, over 100 miles an hour. And we'd be cruising down an expressway at 100 miles an hour and I'm watching the instantaneous uh, fuel economy gauge on the dash and it's it's reading 30 miles per gallon at 100 miles an hour with a V8. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Now listen, the we spent a lot of time on that. We spent a lot of time. The other thing we spent a lot of time on, well, I didn't personally. My office partner Jim did because he was our powertrain guy. Mm -hmm. uh, was making the car invisible to radar. There's a lot of little side stories like that with the Corvette, and uh, Jim spent, you know, seemed like you know weeks uh, trying to figure out how to make the Corvette as as radar invisible as possible and of course as we know today from the uh all the stealth aircraft and that there that the military mm -hmm. has it's all about it's all about flat surfaces and angles you know to reflect the microwaves away right yep so jim set up a, uh he, he would he would go out on the straightaway he bought a radar gun he'd set it up and he he'd make passes and see when the radar gun picked up the car how far away he was and his goal, obviously, to get closer and closer to the radar gun before it could pick up the car. And um, he was, uh, he, what he ended up doing, if you look at the uh, C4, they tilted the, the front bumper beam back just uh, two or three degrees, a very slight angle. So it didn't affect the performance of the bumper beam, but it was mm -hmm. just, that was the big, that was the big thing that the radar saw. That was the biggest really? image that it saw. So they tilted it back a few degrees and it reflected the, uh, it, man, Jim said that the uh, the radar image on the car went way, way low. They even did, uh, they even put, I think, it, uh, I'm, I'm, my memory serves me right, uh, a shield on the air pump so that it was an angle. The air pump was one of the things that was, uh, was uh, being reflected out by the microwaves. So mm. there were all kinds of little devices that Jim kind of invented. In in the end, he got the he got it down to uh, somewhere around three or four hundred feet before the radar 
could see the car. And that was close enough that you saw him before the radar saw you, if you were being observant. Wow. See, that's yeah. cool. And that's stuff you don't hear, you know? No, no, no. Yeah, I wish Jim was here. He can tell a story a lot better than me. <laughs> oh, he did a great Another job. little side story. Jim was a crazy guy. I mean, Jim was a riot. And uh, uh, he and I were office partners, and we, we had a ball together. But uh, we there was a problem with the Z28. It had just come out in 82. And it had a, it had a towel induction system on the uh, on the intake. Well, there was a there was a uh, there was a problem if the car sat outside overnight in a long, in a rainstorm, the water would drain into the intake and go down into the engine. And when you went to start it, you'd hydraulically lock the engine. Wow! So so we had a, we had this Ram Air intake on the Corvette that was built into the hood. You know, it had a clamshell hood that lifted mm -hmm. up hinged in the front and molded into the bottom of the of the hood were these two ducts that ducted air to the uh to the engine and jim ran a couple of tests and discovered that we had the same problem as the as the camaro only different circumstances in our case it was if you drove through deep water so if you um, got to yeah. a situation where there was a big rainstorm and there was six or eight inches of water on the ground and you went through it at any speed You'd pull all that water up into the engine and hydraulically. That's lock. not good. So Jim came up with a series of a, a new design with a kind of a labyrinth system built in to to just to slow the water down so it couldn't get to the engine. It had too much of a kind of torturous path to go around to get to the engine. And I remember he had this Corvette. He had he we have a we had a water pit at GM Proving Grounds. And you could flood the water pit as deep as you wanted. So Jim would slowly raise the water in the water pit and then drive through it at ever-increasing speeds to see where, you know, where the uh, engine started to induct water. And uh, he got to the point where, <laughs> if he has pictures of this, this would be great. I know he had some. He, he, would, uh, he took the T-tops off the car, and here's Jim standing in the car, standing up, with waders on and he's driving his car through two feet two feet of water at i don't know 20 miles an hour or something and he and he made it through without drowning the engine and the water was actually a wall of water was coming over the hood up over the windshield and water falling down inside the car and he's in waders driving through this thing that was a wacky kind of stuff we used to do in corvette that's unbelievable that's a great yeah. story yeah, another another little one, another little side story. So I get a letter from a guy. Uh, he had a failed engine in a in a. It was an older Corvette, and and uh, it was an eighty. I think it was about an eighty, some kind of early early eighties, maybe late seventies Corvette. So this guy somehow got my phone number in my office, which was hard to do at GM. They didn't give mm -hmm. phone numbers out to people, but mm -hmm. uh, this guy somehow found me, called me in my office and uh, relayed this story to me that he'd, he'd uh, spun the number four rod bearing on his Corvette engine and he couldn't, uh, he was having trouble with the dealer. The dealer was claiming that he abused it. I said, well, what were you doing with the car? He said, I was driving across New Mexico. And I said, oh, okay. On the expressway? Yeah, I was on the expressway. I said, how, how far were you going? He says, I drove all the way across New Mexico. And how fast were you going? I was going as fast as the car would go flat out. <laughs> I go, okay, typical Corvette driver, right? <laughs> yeah. 
that surprised me. <laughs> so uh, I said, "Why don't you send me? Have the dealer send me the send me the engine." So they sent us the engine. We gave him a new engine. And, oh, that's nice. And after after going through it, you know, when I got the engine, we took the oil pan off. The oil was jello. No it, way. It wasn't a. It wasn't a. Uh, it was a. It was a uh, temperature failure. He'd overtemp the oil and turned it to jello, and then obviously it wouldn't pump anymore. And you know, the bearings lost oil pressure, and the number four was the first to go. So. Huh. Uh, Got that information back to our chief engineer, and this was all during the time period we were doing the C4 Corvette. And uh, Dave called me up and he says, new rule, okay? Every C4 Corvette will be able to burn an entire tank of fuel at wide open throttle without failing anything. Wow. So, yeah, so that's when the, uh, that's when the water, that's when the, uh, uh, water to oil coolers went on the Corvette. We used a Modine water to oil cooler uh, that was sandwiched in between the engine block and the oil filter so that your oil temperature never ran more than maybe, you know, five, 10 degrees above water temperature. That's, that's quite another great story. So yeah, Rick, do you want to, do you want to spend some time talking about some of your, your, your love of motorcycles? I know you, you dig bikes oh, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess motorcycles are kind of my first love, really. Um, anything with anything with two wheels. And uh, I was, uh, I uh, I started out uh, riding trials. You know, what trials is motorcycle trials. It's a it's a it's a contest where you you run through uh, off road obstacle course at low speed. And you, you may be riding over big boulders and rocks and large sized logs and uh, steep, muddy hills. Uh, uh, and you go through what's called a section. It's a short section of uh, a course with all these obstacles in it. And you're being observed. It's called observed trials. And you're supposed to be able to make it through without touching your feet to the ground. Keep your feet on the pegs all the way through. Every time you dab your foot on the ground, they dock you a point, right? So I started out that way, slow speed, but I always wanted to road race, but I never knew how to get into it. And uh, there was a couple of guys in the office that used to go down to Daytona. They'd take their motocross bikes, take the engines out, put them in uh, road race frames, and go down there and ride the amateur races. So that's how I, how I kind of got started with those guys. Uh, we rode the 24-hour endurance race at Nelson Ledges, Ohio. That was my first my first road race on a on a uh, 250cc two-stroke Yamaha road bike RD250. And uh, I went on to uh, kind of move up through the ranks uh, and race Grand Prix bikes, 250cc Grand Prix bikes. Um, I got a 750cc Yamaha TZ750 that I raced for a while. Probably the most evil handling, fastest motorcycle I've ever put my leg over. <laughs> and what year was this? Uh, this was about 1980. So um, it was funny because I'm sitting in my office one day and these motorcycle buddies of mine at Chevrolet walked in my office and they throw this magazine on my desk. Um, 
And uh, in the back of the magazine, there's an ad for this Yamaha TZ750 road racer. And uh, they said, do you know what that is? And I says, no, I've never seen one before. Well, and they explained, that's the most, that's the fastest, most evil motorcycle on planet Earth. And that one's for sale and you should buy it. So <laughs> I said, okay. So I was headed out to Arizona. It was in California. And so mm -hmm. I headed out to Arizona to do some testing for Chevrolet. And uh, I took a little side trip on the weekend over there. And I bought this motorcycle, crated it up, air freighted it back to Detroit. And uh, I, rode, I rode raced it for a couple of years and discovered just how insane it really was. <laughs> you know, it, as it was a four-cylinder, two-stroke, water-cooled uh, factory works bike. And uh, so uh, I realized fairly quickly that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't cut out to ride that motorcycle. It wasn't, it wasn't me, so I sold it. And I uh, went on to do endurance racing with a friend of mine. Uh, we raced all over the country, um, all the big tracks, Daytona, Talladega, Laguna Seca, you know, Mid-Ohio, Road America, Road Atlanta. Basically did the pro circuit with the AMA in, uh, in oh, wow. uh, class endurance on a Suzuki GSXR 1100. And what do you ride today? A 1974 Norton 850 Commando. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? That's cool. Yeah. yeah, I got into vintage motorcycles here after my racing career ended. And uh, I got a few vintage motorcycles in my garage that I play around with. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, speaking of awesome, this episode was great. You know, I, I always enjoy talking to you and hearing your stories and then sharing them with us, Rick. Really, really a pleasure. Can't tell you much. I appreciate you doing the episode. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I just want to say I'm only one guy of thousands of guys that have done similar things. And uh, as far as the Corvette uh, goes, I'm only one one guy there, too. There are lots of yeah. other guys that worked on the C4 Corvette that would be fun to talk to if we could get a hold of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'd love to do that. And look, you know, it's, it's funny because that one-hour special kind of launched the series about – the lost Corvettes, you know, the 36 yeah. that were found that were given away in that sweepstakes, uh, which those cars are coming out great, you know. And, and I'll tell you, like, those C4 Corvettes have really, they've held up well. You know, the, the ones in that collection, the, the 89's only got 7,000 miles and 7,500 miles. The 88's got, like, 22,000. It's just, it's funny because yeah. I don't, I think back in the day they got their just due, and then I think there was a period of time where they kind of, like, were not in but our old guys in my shop are like, you know, these are really nice cars. You know, it's like it's kind of like a rebirth now. Yeah, there really is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I actually think I see more of them on the road now than I used to ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. Because you know what, Hot Rise really realizing you can go buy one, like I said, for eight nine grand. You know, you put a supercharger on it, change the exhaust, and you know, and like literally for like fifteen grand, you got a twelve second car, another eight second car. You know. Yep. I mean, where else are you gonna get? that kind of performance for 15 20 grand nowhere yeah it's yeah. pretty cool yep and drive it all day with the ac blasting it handles like a beast yep yeah great stuff well anyway buddy listen always great all talking right. to you we'll talk again soon